0: I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore, I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand, refugee camp. I was born in Mumbai.
1: I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was
2: born in England. I was born in Costa Rica.
1: Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we hear the voice of Ruth Zuniga. She has spent her life forging community, from her childhood in the shadow of volcanoes, to working with indigenous communities in Alaska, to serving Latinos through mental health counseling. Ruth has always found and built community. Monica Salazar has Ruth's story.
2: My life has been difficult, but overall it has turned out pretty good. There is a, we can say the universe, God, somebody has
0: always been looking out for me. Ruth Zunaga grew up in a Teg community. She had close relationships to God, to the people of her small Costa Rican town, and to her family. Although her relationships were multiple and intimate, they weren't always easy. I like to say
2: that besides being the daughter of my mom and my dad, I'm the daughter of this uh, volcano that is in front of my house. I'm from this little town. It's between three major volcanoes. It's called Aguas Claras. It means clear waters. And it's the perfect name because it rains a lot and has lots of rivers, lots of creeks. But because it's rural, it meant we knew everybody. We still uh, know everybody. So this is not, this is a community where, yes, I was raised by my my immediate family and influenced by my extended family. My whole community influenced me. Most of the sustaining was done by my mom. So we when we talk about Sustaining, I mean, you know, we still have the little property and maybe here will be considered a farm. There is just the property of the house, which you will plant everything and raise the chickens and have the cows and have the, the milk and the cheese and all that kind of stuff. So we will only acquire very few things such as sugar and coffee, sometimes rice, but everything else was given by the land. I was six years old when we had electricity and 18 when we have a telephone. And so even to call people, like my brother moved out when he was 20 years old uh, to completely the other side of the the country, so we will travel uh, by bus on Sundays to go and call him. And so my husband always said that going to my hometown is like going back into time. And I remember, like one of the maybe fun or fun memories was coming from high school and going to to the back of my house to just water the veggies and just getting the small of the yeah. earth and watering the veggies. And so having that constantly relationship with nature, I will do my studies in the roof of the house. That's where you know I will climb the orange tree and go to the roof of the house, and that's where I will read my books and do my studying.
0: In Aguas Claras, very few girls completed high school. In her evangelical community, women were not encouraged to pursue education. And growing up, Ruth was told that her future was to stay at home and help the family. Ruth, however, was a precocious student, eager to learn.
2: So one thing is there is no schooling here. Second is you have to work because you have to sustain the family. Third for them was education is for men, not for women. And four was the religion. If you get into a bus with a bunch of other teenagers, you're going to become corrupted and you're going to lose your way out. Also for me being the youngest daughter, my siblings are 15 and 10 years older than me, so I'm the youngest of four. And so there were these expectations about what I needed to do and what I needed to be. And so those are part of the narrative of my experiences when it became to graduate from elementary school, that was it. And my mom said, Okay, you know that your role is you're not gonna get married, you have to take care of me. I remember my mother was saying, You know, only the bad girls go to high school. I love learning. I love being in the school. I tend to be very mature. I was, as I say, very studious. I was also very religious, so many of the stuff that my mom believed and my hometown believed are things that I also believe. My brother was able to go to high school, but when my sisters graduated from elementary school, which means they were 12 years old, both of them were sent to work to sustain the family because my father was not in the picture anymore. My sisters didn't go to a school, and one of my sisters said, I will, and my, my both of my sisters, they say, we will support, we will work hard for her to go to high school so we don't have another person to work. We will do the work for her. And the other one fought very high and said, you know, This has to happen. We need to send her to high school. She cannot stay here. So both of my sisters, my brother was out out already. So both of my sisters found a way and convinced my mom to let me. And at some point during that time, my dad might have arrived for a couple of months. And so they convinced my dad and they say, okay, you can go. (laughs) I attended high school. I started attending that way, but always feeling that if I make any mistake, I'm going to lose this privilege. This was a privilege that was given to me, that my sisters are doing this, my mom allowed it, and any mess up that I do, this privilege is gone. So I always, even when I... Was a very good student. I was very well behaved. You know, a lot of times I have this guilt and this sensation of people are observing me. I have to do all of these things because otherwise I'm going to
0: lose this privilege. Ruth took a bus long hours on pothole dirt roads. She was one of three girls in her class. She loved it, and she excelled. School became a way to escape some of the discomfort of home, especially her relationship with her dad, who was in and out of prison.
2: I will spend maybe the weekends, instead of going to my... Grandparents' house, as the other cousins, we will go to jail, to prison to visit my dad. Um, never faced me. I think the mon- moments that he will face me is when t- my cousins will treat me different because I was the daughter of a criminal, and that's what they will say it. And so that's the only time that it faced me. He became the Robin Hood of our town. Like, you know, if somebody was in a pickle, they will work with him and he will help them by robbering
0: somebody, robber somebody, to the ones that have more money. Despite his crimes, Ruth's father remained a beloved figure in Aguas Claras, someone who stood up for the poor in the community. With her father in and out of prison, Ruth, her sisters, and her mother were left to fend for themselves, putting a strain on her mother's mental health. He was 12 years in prison.
2: I worked, actually, and we have to travel about seven hours to get there uh, for the last time. The other times, it was in and out, and I cannot even keep up with it, but... During those 12 years, there was not a single day that my father didn't have three or four visitors from my community. And if you go my community and you ask for my father, everybody will just open the carpet and say, if you're friends of Tito Zúñiga, that's his name, we give you anything. School that was difficult but it was never about the grades like through all this, these difficulties you know my dad being who knows where my mom difficulties with her emotions and her mental health and all the other difficulties in life and I was never like a, never affected my grades I always loved to learn I did every competition that I could be in regards to academic stuff a lot of times I found my comfort and on the religion, seeing my sisters having a similar outlook on life. But the most difficult part was uh, losing my sister. Actually, she got cancer when I was 13. So that's the reason why I became emotional because she was only 17 when she got married. And when she was 21 years old, I was 13, she got cancer. She had two children already. And she went to treatment and was very difficult, very, very painful, three years of. Lots of work, and I was taking care of her children, one who has cerebral palsy and the other is was a little. So it was really hard going through that process of battling her cancer and having all the difficulties of separation, especially because my two siblings, my two sisters, are who I believe gave me the emotional support that I needed. I always like to say that the best way to describe my family, my immediate family, is that we are a very faithful family. I have never had a single fight with any of my siblings. Never, like, it's very common, and never, because it just doesn't appear. And my father have done all these things to us. My mom have did a lot of stuff to us, and most likely we did a lot of stuff to them. And there has never been this sense of grudges or why, or, like, if my father could actually do another horrible thing, mistake, and I know that the four of us could show up wherever he is. And same thing for all of us. It's another sense of, it's kind of loyalty more than faithfulness.
0: Ruth would go on to graduate second in her class, but when it came time to apply to college, she had no idea how to navigate the college application process. No one was there to guide her. So instead of attending a four-year college, she decided to stay on with the job that she got while in high school. She found a local college that she could attend on weekends and began studying business administration. In order to graduate from
2: high school, I needed to do an internship in a hotel. I did a study in a vocationalist high school. And through that process, leaving out my hometown, leaving my family, leaving my, my community... My eyes start being open, so I start realizing that many of the things that I was raised were a little bit dogmatic and not appropriate, and so I didn't know how to navigate that. So I have to remove myself from it. I didn't know what I needed to do to go into college. So I took the SAT, and I was able to get into medical school based on that. But the next thing that has to happen was, like, you know, where do you register? What do you do? None of that I knew. I didn't even know where to go. So I didn't go to college. I stayed into the hotel and work and as I'm working, I tried to go into a private university, which means that I could study on
0: Saturdays and during Sundays and at night by working in hotels. At age 21, Ruth was successfully managing a Best Western Hotel and continuing her studies. One day, while at work, she received news from back home. Her father was back in prison, but this time it was for murder. She knew she needed to go back home to help her mom, but she couldn't just leave her job in the city. Around the time her father went to prison, she met two Americans at the hotel who were in Costa Rica on business. They offered Ruth a good opportunity as an office manager at a new power plant near her hometown. With the job, she could help her family and continue her weekend studies. Joining her at the new job would be Andy, a Costa Rican environmental scientist. He had lived abroad in the United States and throughout South America, and came from a highly educated family. They annoyed each other right off the bat. But with time... And he would turn out to be Ruth's husband. So
2: the six of us have to start that, that day. So my husband show up, the other men show up, I was the only woman. So my husband is like, I don't understand, who, according to what he says, he will actually say, I don't understand why you're hiring these women. She doesn't speak English. And you, we need somebody that is speaking English for a power plant that is owned by Americans and produced by Americans. And when the two primary managers speak zero Spanish. And you hiring her and she doesn't speak English. Number one, she hasn't been here in two weeks. And these other applicants have all these degrees. She has no degrees. Why are you hiring her? And I say, because they know me. And I know them. And we have a relationship. And they know that they could wait for me. They can hire and get somebody that is super qualified. But they don't know that person. And they know that what I can produce. And I think they have some sense of gratitude. Fun thing is like a... Three days later, no, he's very rude to me. I laugh, and two days later, I dream that I marry this guy. This is two days after, and we haven't met, so I just said, oh, by the way, Andy, uh, I don't like you. I, I know you don't like me, but I I actually think we're going to mar- marry because I dream about it. And he starts laughing and laughing and saying, not in my life. We were very close as a friends, a natural, and we grew into the relationship in a way that was very natural. I am very comfortable with who I am as a person. Like, I'm very genuine in that sense. So I remember talking with him about, like, this conversation I have about my family, my life. And I remember he, his mouth would fall, like, drop and say, how in the world are you here? And how you have all these difficulties. And you're doing so well, Come on why this is there is no difficulties about it And so the family didn't accept him as a boyfriend because he was no Christian. And so that was the first thing that's a prohibited thing to do. Like you cannot be in a relationship with somebody that is no Christian or Evangelic from that church. So that was the first thing. My mom kicked me out because actually when I started dating Andy, because, you know, she found the, the birth control pills. And that's the reason to kick me out of the house because I was not a pure woman anymore. So I grabbed my books from the university, put them in a bag, called my boss and a pair of clothing, called my boss at one in the morning and say, this is what is happening. So he came at one in the morning and picked me up and took me to his house. Wow. During the day, my I called my sister and my sister said, mom is at church, come today if you want to get some clothing, extra clothing, or to get a couple of your books. So I went behind my mom to get some stuff at the house. So... I told Andy this, and so it seems like in the conversation, Andy, they're in a meeting with a bunch of lawyers, and as they're having a conversation, Alex, his friend, say, how is Rude And you're doing, by the way. He say, ah, you know, not very good. This is what happened, and he just chair, And Alex turned, he's, he's a Venezuelan guy from Venezuela, so he understands the culture pretty well, and he say, oh, you know, that's, that problem is easily solvable. Marry her. And so, he actually said, yeah. So he went, outside the conference room, got into a pay phone, called me, and he said, I answered the phone. This is in the power plant, so I'm the person that answered the phone. And he said, hey, Ruth, and I say, said, yeah. He, this is what he said, what about June? This was May. And I knew what he was talking about. And I say no, because it's too recent. Okay, July. And he, I say no, July, no, because it's bad luck, because my sister one got married on July 15, and she died seven years exactly. My life is just interesting. <laughs> seven years exactly, and my other sister got married on July 15, and seven years exactly, her husband left her with two children. I said, no way, not July. And he said, "August." I said, okay, August. We have two months to plan this and get married. plan about, you know, what he wanted to do. He wanted to study. I remember he said he was going for a PhD. I was like, what is that? So as we got married, he actually was applying to universities and he was accepted in UCLA and the University of Idaho. And he actually said, no, we're going to University of Idaho. And I say, why? He said, because UCLA is too much. It will be too much for you. It's gonna be hard enough for you to move out of the country, we're not gonna put you in a city. You have never lived in a city. And so he applied for his PhD program. And that time I finished my my bachelor's degree. I worked a little bit as a psychologist. And and so the coming to the US was difficult, like for many immigrants, was very difficult. First, there were some moments of resentment, why could when not I, when I do, that, we do this? I want to stay here. But there were other moments of, wow, what is harder to navigate here, though, is the individualistic portions of everyday life. I think people have good, we, we have seen it, like people come and support us in ways that we never imagined. But I definitely miss the sense of Or more of the cultural stuff of, you know, I wish that I could just go into my neighbor and open the door like in the same way that I do in Costa Rica.
0: Ruth tried to sit in on some psychology classes, but English frustrated her. She needed to learn the language. She couldn't afford a tutor, but she found Phyllis, a kind ESOL teacher who agreed to teach Ruth English twice a week in exchange for lunch. She learned quickly, but still felt very isolated. She and Andy lived in the dorms saving money. Ruth worked as a resident assistant for two years while she earned her master's degree in counseling. When she finished, she knew she wanted more. I was longing for continuous studying, but I didn't know what to do.
2: And I looked for programs, and same thing, how, you know, they're just going to cover so much, and we are uh, immigrants, and we're not even green card holders. We just just have uh, visas attached to uh, universities, and so it's not like you can do so much about it. And through that process, I found that there's this amazing PhD program in Alaska that was focused on rural and indigenous psychology with emphasis uh, rural, excuse me, clinical and community psychology with emphasis in rural and indigenous people. And as I was just seeing that as you saying, this is totally me. I was the only Latino psychologist in Alaska only bilingual person there was another master degree person in Alaska that spoke Spanish but I was the only one and I love it I love working with my community so I have this group of women uh, excuse me uh, older adults Latinos with a lot of experiences of trauma many of them uh, refugees as well, Latino refugees, many of them from Dominican Republic, some of them coming all the way from Trujillo era, so they're very older adults. And so a lot of trauma in that sense. I was able to use my indigenous trainings, because the culture working from healing, from a perspective that is no Western oriented, that is no Western models oriented, but thinking about other ways of healing and how do I incorporate and work in psychology, which is such a scientific Western oriented models in ways that work for the community. And I also had the conversation when the patients were saying, doctora, what can you do to bring us more people like you? How do I going to do this work in a way that is not only me. How can I focus in to bring in some students? But it was going to be really difficult because there were not many Spanish-speaking people. Like I, I, I had no other peers or anybody else.
0: Then an opportunity arose for Ruth to train more culturally specific psychologists like herself. One of Ruth's mentors had recently moved to Pacific University in Oregon. She told Ruth about their Latino psychology emphasis program.
2: Those days she called me and say. Ruth, I don't know if you're ever interested in living in Alaska, but this position is perfect for you, but you are the perfect person for this position. And was the director of a Latino psychology emphasis program. When I received that message, I'm like, this is the answer. I'm getting off the bus to go focus on training students to send them to here. It's not going to be only me, but I'm just going to focus on training more people to be able to do the work that I cannot do by myself. And so more people can be part of this larger community or serving the community.
0: Andy was also able to find a position at Pacific University. The two of them moved to Oregon, where she began leading the next generation of culturally specific psychologists.
2: I never thought about being a professor because i didn't want it to be in the constraints of academia it services my passion and and that's what i wanted to do and however this position offered me one component was you are the director of this program and one part is that you're going to be working with the community and i say if i come here i can teach i can serve the community but i will be at the community you will let me do that and they say yes We go to the churches. I work very closely with the Promotores de Salud, community health workers at the churches. So I'm as many churches as possible. My students, so I am there. Uh, Like the Mexican consulate, maybe like the Centro Cultural, the activities there. So being visible because... Is maybe the only opportunity that people have to see a psychologist, and we hear it over and over again when they say, when they see me and they see me that I'm a normal person, that I'm part of the community, that I'm reachable, then they're going to feel more comfortable to go to our clinics and seek out support. Our focus in the program is, yeah, training the students, To be culturally responsive and bilingually focused and having the bilingual skills. But my goal, my ultimate goal is always how do we remove the barriers for mental
0: health for the community. Ruth had always shown up for her community and given herself in service. So when tragedy struck her family, the community showed up for her.
2: When my daughter was one year old, we discovered she had cancer. It was removed. We were thinking that it was low risk. It was fine. We continued living our lives. And when she was 20 months old, we were in Costa Rica. We discovered a huge mass. Immediately flew out to Dornbecker. We knew already that this was the cancer returning. And she was in treatment for a year and a half. Of that year and a half that she was in treatment, half of that time we were in the hospital. Andy and I together with her. And this place, the university, hold our positions, provide us immense amount of support. Maybe all this chaos of difficult things in life came to prepare just were nothing compared to the pain and the experiences that we had with my daughter, like the for moments of not knowing if we, she will survive or if we will have her here, going through just that rigorous extremely rigorous treatment to just... The unknown of having a child with cancer and the difficulties I could write a book about the amount of love and support we received from the community we have moved here for a year like two, two years we have been here when my daughter developed cancer and we didn't know a lot of people and we were in the hospital we had people dropping us food at the hospital completely strangers people that we never never knew uh, dropping us food, financial support was always there, the prayers. Uh, many times we came home, the house was clean. People, uh, strangers, would come and clean our house. I don't know how many people have the code of our house to get in. Like, I think a thousand <laughs> people, mem- members in the community. We should change that code pretty soon. And two years later, here we are. Soul is healthy, just doing. Great she's driving so we're very lucky the amount of, of love that I have received is humbling and it's unddescriptable so I have be, I have suffered a lot and yet I have been so blessed in ways that I cannot uh, comprehend so I'm very very fortunate yeah and here I am. The support and the love that I receive in the community in Costa Rica, yes, there were some negative stuff and some culty, but the essence is that the community was always there for me. When I go, same, similar with my father, it's like how craziness, but the community is really there. There When I go, the community, even with their craziness of seeing things and their dramatic ways of seeing, they're still there. I have changed the way of being, it has been a journey. I'm very spiritual now. In religious, yes, and it has helped me in some ways to cope with other challenges uh, during the last years, but I have to redefine my relationship with God and who God was because there was also a lot of pain in regards to religion. I redefine my relationship to find a God that is not as constricted as I was raised to believe, and to see it as more about love and about about different ways and and, and in so many ways that is not specifically focused. So I still have Christian values, but maybe not all the rituals, not all the rituals. And I still have a very I feel like I feel like now before any other time I feel more connected than God than any other time because it's because understanding for now, having a better understanding about it my life has been difficult but overall it has turned out pretty good, there is a we can say the universe, God, somebody has always been looking out for me and I think this upbringing that I had or living every moment at the time and, and focusing on this has helped me because that's what I do now, I just live and enjoy every moment with them, Andy her and I
1: Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was written by myself, Caitlin Dwyer, and Monica Salazar. Rick March edited the audio, assisted by Gordon Graham. The original interview was conducted in spring of 2020 by Hannah Kendall. Our executive producer is the ever-optimistic Sankar Rahman. Many Roads to Hear is expanding. We're looking for radio producers, especially those from immigrant communities and communities of color, to join our team. We're all volunteer for now, but we've got dreams. Please email mrh at theimmigrantstory.org for more information. For more stories, please visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash Many Roads. listen online at prp.fm, or find us wherever you download your podcasts.